You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 8th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Queen's University Belfast in August 2018. The conference was generously supported by the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the School of Arts, English and Languages and the Institute of Irish Studies, all at Queen's University Belfast and by Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with HistoryHope.ie. There are now more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to HistoryHope.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Alma O'Donnell from University College Cork. Her paper was entitled a 17th century public exorcism by the discalced Carmelite, Father Paul Stephen Brown. So today I will discuss the exorcisms performed by Father Paul of St. Ubald, a.k.a. Stephen Brown, who was one of the first members of the discalced Carmelite order in Ireland. This is the key case within my thesis research into 17th century Irish Catholic exorcists. It is also the most complicated case that I have come across so far, and my research into Brown is ongoing. The complication has been due to what I believe are misinterpretations made by other studies of the case about a particular source. I will discuss this in my paper. I will also propose that a change in the focus of this case may help to demonstrate its significance. Now, to just give a brief overview of the case, in 1630, Stephen Brown performed a series of public exorcisms on a young girl in Dublin. The young girl, who was about 12 years old, was said to have been possessed by eight spirits and displayed several symptoms of possession, including levitation, unnatural strength, and a new knowledge of Latin. The girl was exorcised by Brown on more than one occasion, both privately and in public. The public exorcisms led to Brown being summoned to the court of Castle Chamber and interviewed about the possessed girl. Here, Brown was asked to perform a private exorcism on the girl at the Castle Chamber in the presence of the Lord's Justice. Brown, however, refused to do so, explaining that such a thing belonged to the glory of God and the benefit of the people that I could not hope for from a private exorcism, but said that he would instead exorcise her in a public place. Brown was eventually imprisoned for his involvement in the exorcisms. And while in prison, Brown was examined, released, and later re-imprisoned. And at his second trial, Brown was accused of having made a pact with a demon and of fraud. Brown was fined either two or three thousand pounds, depending on the source and was sent to stand in a pillory in a public square for three hours each day over four consecutive days, with a large tablet displayed in the front of the pillory bearing the inscription, Imposter and Seducer, or Imposter and Sorcerer, again depending on the source. Brown was later released from prison at the request of King Charles I on behalf of the Queen. This case is arguably the most significant example of Catholic exorcism in early modern Ireland because some of the exorcisms were performed publicly before large crowds, and Brown was thus put on trial. As a result, there are numerous sources that discuss the exorcisms and the trial, which gives an insight into this case that is not found in other less documented Irish exorcisms. Most of the cases of Irish exorcism are very vague, very brief, um, nowhere near as detailed as this case. My overview of the case came from Brown's own work, The Brevis Relatio Adventus et Progressus Nostrorum Religiosorum in Regno Hiberniae, a history of the Discalced Carmelite Order in Ireland, which he wrote in 1670. 
In his account, Brown describes in detail the young girl's symptoms of possession and his experience in prison, but he does not give details about the exorcisms that he performed. Other sources, however, do give description of, of descriptions of Brown performing an exorcism. One account is given in an untitled man- manuscript by the discalced Carmelite Arthur Merlin. Um, the exorcisms are also discussed in a letter by the Earl of Cork, Sir Richard Boyle, to Lord Dorchester in April 1630. Brown's arrest, trial and sentencing are mentioned throughout the diary of the historian Sir James Ware, and Brown's second trial and sentencing is discussed in a letter by the Lord Deputy, Sir Thomas Wentworth, to Sir Edward Coke on 2nd of March 1635. And I've updated all the dates here from the old calendar. The case was written about in an 18th century manuscript entitled Missioni Inglaterra Irlanda Olenda by a certain Father Blaise. An English summary of this manuscript can be found in an unpublished thesis about the Carmelite Order in Ireland by Fintan O'Brien and Patrick Rush. Um, I'm still hoping to get my hands on the original manuscript. Furthermore, several studies have looked into Brown's imprisonment and trial for the exorcism. O'Brien and Rush make note of it in their analytic history of the Carmelite Order in Ireland, previously mentioned. It is briefly discussed by Glyn and Martin in the introduction to their transcription of the Brevis Relatio and by Brockhard Mansfield in his biography of Brown. More recently, the case has been discussed by Mark Empey in his chapter on the Cook Street Riots in the book Riotous Assemblies, and by Ed Andrew Sneddon in his work Witchcraft and Magic in Ireland. However, I believe a key aspect of this case has been misinterpreted by these studies, most likely due to the confusing nature of Brown's own writing. The surviving manuscript of the Brevis Relatio is likely an unrevised first draft, and Brown's style of Latin is quite unusual compared to other writers of his time. And by unusual, I mean bad. (laughs) It can be difficult to decipher what exactly he is saying. Furthermore, Brown is often extremely vague in his description of events. And so sometimes he goes into mad detail, sometimes he completely brushes over things. Um, so this has led to a misinterpretation of Brown's work in regards to the timeline of his imprisonment and trials. The studies generally state that Brown spent two years overall in prison. Um, I think this assertion began with either the 18th century account by Father Blaise or perhaps the English translation of Blaise's manuscript. So hopefully when I find Blaise's manuscript I'll be able to know for sure. So the translation um, states that Brown was cast into prison where he was detained without trial for close on a year. He was then brought before the court, but no wrong being prived against him. He was sent back to prison without sentence and detained for another year. Uh, And it seems that this kind of um, idea was made by the other studies of the case, so likely it was people were just adapting from that idea so you're going back to other studies and you're thinking oh two years in prison so yeah two years in prison and um, kind of a chain developed from there so generally the studies all state that Brown spent one year in prison without trial and was released after a second year in prison now before I say why I believe it was a, um, a misconception I'll just explain where I believe it came from So I believe the confusion originated from two statements in the Brevis Relatio. This first one, they sent me to a narrow prison cell where I remained for a whole year except for 10 days. I was not examined for that whole year. Um, And also, at last, after two years of imprisonment, our Catholic Queen intervened. So 
So these two statements um, in the Brevis Relatio are where I believe the perceived timeline of two years in prison came from. However, what Brown is in fact discussing are two separate times in prison. Furthermore, a careful reading of the Brevis Relatio makes it clear that his time spent in prison before his first trial was longer than a year. What Brown was actually discussing when referencing, when referring to his first year in prison was his time in solitary confinement. As he elaborates, they sent me to a narrow prison cell where I remained for a whole year except for 10 days and no one was permitted to come to me except a lone doorman. I was not examined for that whole year and it was not said to me on what cause I was in prison for. At the end of which year I was given the freedom to walk through the prison and talk with other prisoners but they were not held in strict confinement as I was with heavy iron shackles. I was finally, still wearing those shackles, led out of prison and there I was examined. Brown then moves on to discuss his return to prison, his second trial and sentencing. I was sent back to jail, we're in another year and while I was there. And he describes at length um, other prisoners that converted um, from Protestantism, um, own threats against him about being executed. He kept being told, like, oh, you're going to be executed on such and such a day. And there was various attempts made for him to convert to Protestantism. And then he continues... Once more, in the way that I was brought to the first tribunal, when they couldn't prove anything against me, one of the councilmen, and that's Bolton, attacked me. Hence, without delay, I was condemned. At last, after two years of imprisonment, our Catholic Queen intervened, and King Charles I, a great man, freed me from the obligation to pay the fine and gave me freedom. The above statements from Brown indicate that he spent a year in solitary confinement and an unspecified amount of time in prison, after solitary confinement, but before his first trial. Brown was released and sent back to prison before his second trial and spent two years in prison the second time. So while the timeline for Brown's overall imprisonment from the Brevis Relatio remains unspecified, it gives a minimum of three years overall imprisonment. We can get a clearer sense of the timeline by collating the other sources that discuss this case. According to James Ware's diary, Brown was arrested and committed to Dublin Castle in August 1630. Letters from both Brown and a fellow discalced Carmelite, Father Anthony of St Mary, show that by the 13th of July 1633, Brown had been released after his first trial, which indicates that Brown's initial time served for his first sent um, sentence or time in prison was just under three years. It remains unclear when exactly he was sent back to prison, although it seems from the Brevis Relatio that he remained in, in prison for a period of time before his second trial, because he discusses this time in prison at length. Ware gives the date for Brown's sentencing to be 14th of February 1635, and Charles I sent an order for his freedom on 7th of August 1636. So I, um, I think when Brown is describing his, all, his overall second term in prison, both before and after the second trial, when he says after two years imprisonment. So he spent, a, going backwards from there, so he spent a couple of months in prison before his second trial. Um, and again, I'm hoping to find more sources to make that a bit more concrete. So this would give an overall total of roughly five years in prison, almost three years for his first term in prison between August 1630 um, and mid-1633, and two years for the second between 1634 and 1636, with roughly one year of freedom in between. And Arthur Merlin's untitled account also indicates a timeline of five years 
as he states that Brown was thrust into the darkness of prison, where he spent five years without much food and suffering the daily blasphemy of heretics. Mm. So that is how I believe that the brevis relatio has been misinterpreted in the past. Brown, in fact, spent a much longer time in prison for the exorcisms than what had previously been believed. I'd like to now discuss briefly why Brown was imprisoned and tried. Um, so previous studies about this case have focused on the political side of Brown's trial. Glenn and Martin, Mark Empey and Andrew Snedden have all seen a connection between the St. Stephen's Day riot of 1629 and Brown's imprisonment for his exorcism. The Stephen's Day riot occurred in Cook Street when members of the public attacked the Archbishop of the, Lord of, of the Church of Ireland and the Mayor of Dublin after they dismantled the Franciscan Chapel on Cook Street in response to the growth of the Catholic religious orders in the city. Brown witnessed the riot and discussed the events immediately before his account of the possession and exorcism. A link has been made between, and a link has been made between the two. In their article, Glynn and Martin suggest that Brown's imprisonment for, for the exorcism may have been partly in retaliation for the display of Catholic strength demonstrated by the riot. In his study, Mark Empey states that Brown was suspected by the Lord's Justice Loftus and Boyle of provoking the people into attacking the, the officials. Unable to prove Brown's involvement in the riot, Loftus and Boyle later used Brown's exorcism to arrest and imprison him as punishment for the riot, a theory which is supported by Andrew Snedden. This is a fascinating way of placing the exorcisms within the contemporary political climate. However, there remains a need to focus solely on the exorcisms and trials so that their significance does not remain overlooked. A look at how Brown's case was discussed by his accusers indicates that the exorcisms were treated seriously and in their own right. When discussing Brown's trial and sentencing, the sources state that Brown was accused of both imposture and witchcraft. In the Brevis Relatio, Brown states that the second trial he was at the second trial he was accused of making a pact with the devil, and that the possessions were performed with the contrivance of the young girl. In his account, Merlin states that Brown was accused of being a magician. The sources from those who opposed Brown also make the connection these accusations against him. In his letter to Dorchester, Richard Boyle states that the girl was said to be possessed with seven devils and tutored by Brown to answer the questions, answer questions in the matter of religion, answers that conform, confirmed the validity of the Catholic faith. Boyle also reports that um, the girl was taught to vomit pins and money and hair in front of the crowds, which isn't massively important, but I think it's interesting. Um, writing in April 1630, while the girl was in custody, but before Brown's imprisonment the following August, Boyle states that, quote, after much pains taken with her, the girl vigorously acknowledged all the priest's deceits and instructions, being willing to conform herself and go to church. Now, this suggests to me that the immediate reaction against Brown was an accusation of fraud, and the witchcraft accusations came later, after the young girl was in custody and had converted to Protestantism. <coughs> As according to James Ware, writing after Brown was in prison, the possession was brought about by a mixture of fraud and bewitchment. Ware states that having been commissioned to Dublin Castle, the young girl confessed that she was not possessed but did her feats by his instruction. A year later, Ware states that the young girl again showed many signs of either being bewitched or possessed by the devil. According to Ware, Brown's mother was also involved, as the girl accused Brown's mother to have bewitched her by crossing her in the street as she went from her examination. 
Brown himself also states that his mother, aunt and sister spent seven weeks in prison while Brown was in his first year of prison for the exorcism. This is quite interesting. Um, it was generally believed that if a bewitcher was in prison, then the symptoms of the bewitchment would cease. So it's interesting that afterwards you get the accusation against his family. It also suggests that Brown's accusers witnessed her symptoms themselves and did not believe them to be fake because they did think that there was another reason behind it. Um, the accusations of imposture and witchcraft are further given by Wentworth in a letter to Coke in March 1635, who states that Brown made the girl, quote, an instrument of setting forth a false miracle to abuse the people withal, pretending she was forsooth possessed, and by his prayers, charms and spells rather, to be dispossessed. Wentworth then states that if the trial had been at the king's bench, he would have judged it sufficient to have Brown hanged, stating, for in truth I am persuaded there was witchcraft in the case. These statements all suggest that Brown's accusers were solely concerned with the exorcisms themselves. Statements made by Boyle and Wentworth would suggest that Brown's arrest was a means of suppressing Catholic activity in the city, which could potentially be roused by the spectacle of a public exorcism. In his letter, Boyle notes that Brown's exorcisms attracted great crowds of people and made Brown famed for his holiness in the process. Boyle then declares his attention to punish Brown as a way of subduing Catholic development in the city, stating, I have my beagles abroad to catch the priest, of whom I doubt not to make such an example, as will work upon the temperate papists, and make them less bolder in their lying priests. In a similar vein, when discussing the reaction to Brown's time in the pillory, Wentworth notes that the incident sent some missionaries into hiding, stating, his punishment cried up amongst them for a kind of martyrdom, and hereupon a kind of panic terror affrighting them, as if certainly there were a present change of religion intended, insomuch as the Jesuits have already shut up their oratory on this side of the town for fear of a sudden persecution. A Benedictine friar has done the like on the other side, and if they were never to open again, the matter were not great. Wentworth followed his statement with the discussion of the growing boldness of the Catholic orders in the city, stating that they are not to be repressed by the secular power of the majesty without a universal scandal to their whole party, and then judge whether it not be high time to put some water into their wine. Since Brown's accusers discuss the need to repress growing Catholic activity, it is then possible that their reaction attests to the impact that Brown's exorcisms potentially had on Catholic revival in Dublin City. Particularly when you note the sizable length of time that Brown was left in prison, his substantial fine and his public branding as an imposter and sorcerer, like five years after the exorcisms occurred. Um, Brown's own insistence on having public exorcisms at his own personal risk also attests the power of a public exorcism for his missionary work. This case therefore demonstrates um, that exorcisms had the potential to be as effective as a tool for the Catholic Reformation in Ireland as it was in Europe. It shows that when an exorcism had the potential to stir up a growing support for the Catholic Church, the authorities treated it as a real threat and reacted accordingly, accordingly to suppress growing support. In light of the significance that this exorcism had in the early 1630s, other cases of exorcism during the Irish Catholic Reformation ought to be analysed to see what they can tell us about the workings of the Irish missions, the religiosity of both the counter-reformers and the laity. And just to briefly summarise, 
Um, the collated sources indicate that Brown spent approximately five years in prison for the exorcisms rather than two years, as had, pre as had previously been believed. The sources also suggest that the exorcisms were treated seriously as a means for Catholic revival by the authorities, and accordingly, Brown was suppressed for his involvement in the exorcisms. This case therefore shows the potential that exorcisms had as part of the Irish missions, and so Irish exorcism ought to be studied and contextualised as part of the Irish Catholic Reformation. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.